beauty of preaching here at night is I can't see the clock up there. <laughs> You're probably thinking it doesn't matter, you can't see a Sunday morning either. But what I want to do this evening is pick up where we left off on Sunday morning. For those of you who are with us on Sunday morning, you remember that we were harmonizing the four Gospels in order to recreate, as it were, the final six months of the public ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. We called it the road to Jerusalem. And we walked along with him via the... Uh, harmonization of those Gospels to take him through those final six months up to the event of Palm Sunday, which we celebrated Sunday last. Well, as we were here together the last time, you'll remember that Jesus had entered into the capital city of Jerusalem in the midst of an overwhelming outpouring of public support and messianic expectations. He had demonstrated through fulfilled prophecy and miraculous deeds that He was indeed the long-awaited One. Now, though, was the time for the leaders of the nation of Israel and the common people who had gathered there in the city for the Passover, and we noted last time perhaps as many as two and a half million pilgrims from all over the known world. It was time for them to decide who was their king. Of course, we know by the end of the week how the people had decided. But the question is, is what caused these people to turn from an adoring throng into a murderous mob? Or in other words, given Sunday and its great expectation, why Friday? Why Friday and a crucifixion? Given Sunday, why Friday? And as my friend Doug Bookman has wanted to answer that question, the answer is Monday and Tuesday. The answer is Monday and Tuesday. You'll remember last week that I told you that Jesus personified His own teaching that we are to be shrewd as serpents and innocent as doves. That is indeed how He conducted Himself during his three-plus years of public ministry. For three years, he had carefully and skillfully utilized the long-standing animosity that existed between the Pharisees and the Sadducees, as well as his popularity with the common people, to be able to go about the nation of Israel, proclaim the gospel of the kingdom in spite of opposition every step of the way. The cleansing of the temple that, that marks His first year of ministry, by that event, Jesus gained a measure of popular support among the Pharisees and the common people because they, they absolutely despised the corruption of the Sadducees whose domain was the temple area. They were the ones who controlled the temple. They were the ones who, who controlled the sacrificial system. And it was corrupt. And it had been ripping the people off for a long time. The people knew it. 
And so when he cleansed the temple that time, immediately his popularity went up among the Pharisees and up among the common people, and the Sadducees were not too pleased. But he left Jerusalem and conducted a significant part of his ministry outside of the capital city, and that was the domain of the Pharisees. It was the Pharisees who controlled the synagogues that dotted the land of Israel from north to south. And it was there as he moved from synagogue to synagogue, preaching among the people and performing miracles, that he confronted the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, and they were none too pleased. This direct attack upon their domain enraged them. But it delighted the Sadducees. And so these two enemies who together formed the Sanhedrin, the leadership of the nation of Israel, Jesus skillfully maneuvered His way among them, antagonizing one and then antagonizing the other, but never both of them at the same time and in the same place. Of course, the common people thought the whole show was great fun. They loved getting their bellies filled and their illnesses healed. And so they followed Him as one might follow a circus performer. But now things are different. Now something significant has happened. Jesus has entered into the city of Jerusalem to make His official claim to her throne as the great Davidic king, the long-awaited one. And in the process of doing that, He is going to galvanize all three groups against Him by simultaneously exposing their hard and unbelieving hearts. And He will do this over the days Monday and Tuesday by assaulting that which is precious to each group. For the Sadducees, it is their temple. For the Pharisees, it is their reputation as the teachers of Israel. For the common people, it is their commitment to the external works-based righteousness that Judaism had become. The nation had externalized, the nation had uh, merchandised the worship of God. And they had absolutely no room for their king. As I said to you, this is the second part of a two-part series designed to prepare our hearts for the miracle of Resurrection Sunday. On the back of your worship bulletin, there's a little bit of room to at least kind of follow along a general outline of where we're going here. I don't have time to go in excruciating detail through the events of these two days, but I am going to move through them. I'm going to cover them in general terms. There's a certain assumption that I've got here that you're familiar, at least generally familiar with most of the events of these two days. You just perhaps have never put them in any kind of an order before to see how they fit together. So we begin on Monday morning early. Jesus having left the temple, He had come in Sunday afternoon. He had looked around in the temple. He had healed a few people. He had had a short confrontation with the Pharisees and He had left, retreated back up the Mount of Olives to Bethany where He would spend the night under the protection of Lazarus his friend. That would be his routine throughout this week, is that he would come into the city in the day, he would leave at night, and he would reside outside the city limits where he had a measure of protection. Monday morning early, as he is on his way into the city, 
Mark's gospel tells us, and it's recorded for us in Mark and Matthew, but Mark's gospel in particular, chapter 11, verses 12 to 14, it says on the next day when they departed from Bethany, he became hungry. And seeing at a distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to see if perhaps he would find anything on it. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. And he answered and he said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples were listening. Jesus is entering into the city. It's very early on Monday morning. He is hungry. Along the road, entering into the city, there is a fig tree. Now, fig trees in that part of the world produce leaves before they produce fruit. And this tree, Mark says, it's not in season for figs, but there was apparently something in the soil that caused the leaves to come out. And so he approaches this tree whose leaves have sprouted early with a legitimate expectation that he will find fruit upon the tree, and he finds none. And he curses the tree. The tree is just like Israel. Just like Israel the day before, giving all the external evidence of being fruitful, that is the triumphal entry, and yet on examination they are barren and they are fruitless. He curses the fig tree. Proceeding on into the city, he arrives in the temple area and he enters into the court of the temple, that is the, the court of the Gentiles. And there he is enraged by the bizarre-like atmosphere of the place. They are selling the uh, sacrificial animals. They are making exchange of of, uh, foreign currencies into the local currency that can um, provide the, the offerings in the temple. And along the way, as I told you before, the Sadducees control this whole thing and they are making a fortune on it. The people would bring their own sacrifice, for example, from Galilee, and then the priests would have to examine it to make sure that it was spotless and and could be used for a sacrifice. They would examine what the people brought. They would find something wrong with it. And they say, but by the way, over here from my uncle, you can buy another lamb that's just perfect for what you need at five times the price. You can bring in your local coinage from all over the known world that has to be exchanged. And of course, you know what people who exchange money can do. And in that process, they're ripping the people off. Verse 15, and they came to Jerusalem, they entered the temple. And he began to cast out those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. And he would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. And he began to teach and to say to them, is it not written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations, but you have made it a robber's den. The chief priests and the scribes heard this, and they began seeking how to destroy him, for they were afraid of him. For all the multitude was astonished at his teaching. He overturns the tables of the money changers. He he overturns the seats of those selling the doves, the sacrificial doves. He drives them from the temple in this righteous rage. This amazingly says here in Matthew 11 verse 6 or Mark 11 verse 16, he would not permit anyone to even carry goods through the temple. That is to use it as a shortcut across the city. For two days, for two days, Jesus controls the temple. It is his throne. 
He is the great messianic king, and it is his throne. And he possesses and he controls his throne room for two days, and there is not a one who can say or do anything about it. In fulfillment of the prophecy of Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1, Behold, I'm going to send my messenger, and he will clear the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? Who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. He enters into the temple and he cleanses it. He possesses it. And in the process, he enrages the Sadducees. Later, on Monday afternoon, John tells us in his Gospel, John chapter 12, that a very significant event happens. John chapter 12, verse 20, it says, Now there were certain Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These therefore came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began asking him, saying, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. The coming of the Greeks to see Jesus signals the end for Israel. She has rejected him. And now the Gentiles seek him out. Jesus goes on here in John chapter 12, and he speaks to them about the requirement to give up your life, to give up this life in order to gain the next. He appeals to the nation, and John ends with his final commentary upon them that though, verse 37, he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this cause they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes, he has hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted, and I heal them. The nation is hard. We don't have much more detail from Monday's account. We do know that Jesus left the city again, Spending it outside the city. Luke tells us that. Luke chapter 21. Verses 37 38. During the day he was teaching in the temple, but at the evening he would go out and spend the night on the Mount of Olives. And all the people would get up early in the morning to come to him in the temple to listen to him. So Monday he leaves the temple. Having cleansed it. Having enraged the Sadducees. Having received the Greeks and having pronounced, as it were, A judgment upon the nation. But it's not all over yet. Tuesday morning comes around. He enters again into the city early on Tuesday morning and the disciples notice that the fig tree is withered from the roots up. That occasions a lesson on prayer from him and the need for a believing heart. And then they enter the court of the temple and Jesus begins Probably one of the most intense days of his entire life. It is a day of controversy. The activities of the prior two days, that is the triumphal entry and the cleansing of the temple on Monday, now sparks a series of four direct confrontations with the leaders of Israel. The purpose of these confrontations is either to discredit Jesus in front of the crowds, or it is to to find a basis for which they might arrest him and or get the Romans to arrest him and put him out of the way. They've already decided they're going to kill him. 
That was decided some time ago. Now the question is just is, is how and when. It is the popularity of the crowds that is still preventing them from carrying out their dastardly scheme. Matthew 26, verse 5, they were saying, not during the festival, lest a riot occur among the people. They're afraid because the people are still kind of hanging on his words, at least superficially. And so they're afraid if they do anything now, if they move against him now, it will start a riot among all of the Passover pilgrims. The Romans will come in and this whole thing will end. And so they have to pry him loose from his popularity among the common people. And so that's what they set about doing. And one group after another of the leadership of Israel confronts him in a series of verbal debates. The first confrontation Matthew records for us over in Matthew chapter 21, and it occurs among the chief uh, with him among the chief priests, the scribes and the elders of the people. And it's a confrontation about authority, about authority. Verse 23, Matthew 21, And when they had come into the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him as he was teaching and said, By what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? Jesus answered and said to them, I will ask you one thing too, which if you tell me, I will also tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John was from what source? From heaven or from men? He says, Consider John's baptism. Where did the authority come for John's baptism? Because John and I and my authority come from the same place because we're preaching the same message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. We preach the same message. Our authority comes from the same place. You tell me, where did John's authority come from? And you'll know where mine comes from. Of course, the text tells us that They cynically are reasoning among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say to us, then why do you not believe? And so the answer, we don't know. We don't know. And he says, well, neither will I tell you where my authority comes from. That leads Jesus into three parables recorded for us here in Matthew's gospel. He immediately begins to tell them three parables. The first one is the parable of the two sons, Matthew 21 28 to 32. In that parable, there are two sons. The first son, the father tells him to do something. He says he will, and he never does. The second son says, I won't, and then he later repents and does. The leadership of Israel is that first son. They said they would, and they don't. Jesus goes on to say, Truly I say to you that the tax gatherers and the harlots will get into the kingdom of God before you, because, see, they are the second son who said they wouldn't. And then repented and did. He gives another parable here. The parable of the vine growers. Matthew 21, 33 to 46. Listen to another parable he says. Verse 33. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and put a wall around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and rented it out to vine growers and went on a journey. And when the harvest time approached, he sent slaves to the vine growers to receive his produce. They took the slaves, they beat one, killed another, stoned the third. He sent more slaves to them. They do the same thing over and over again. Afterwards, verse 37, he sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. 
But when the vine growers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize his inheritance. Jesus says, therefore, verse 33, I say to you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and will be given to a nation producing the fruit of it. Verse 45, and when the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they understood he was speaking about them. They are so cynical at this point. So hearts so filled with anger and rage. They know who he is. And they kill him anyway. He is the son of the owner of the vineyard. And they say, let's kill him and seize it for ourselves. They are going to seize the kingdom for themselves. That prompts Jesus to enter into his third parable here, the king's wedding feast. Matthew 22. King of heaven may be, or the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who gave a wedding feast to his son, and he sent out his slaves to call those who had been invited to the wedding feast, and they were unable to come, unwilling to come. Again, he sent out other slaves, saying, "Tell those who have been invited, behold, I prepared my dinner, my oxen and my fatted livestock are all butchered, and everything is ready. Come to the wedding feast." But they paid no attention, went on their way, one to his own farm, another to his business. The rest seized his slaves, mistreated them, and killed them. For the king was enraged and sent his armies and destroyed those murderers and set their city on fire. Then he said to his slaves, the wedding is ready, but those who are invited are not worthy. Go, therefore, into the main highways and as many as you find there, invite those to the wedding feast. The Old Testament prophets had foretold the great wedding feast. The twelve disciples had been sent out to invite the nation to the feast, and yet they were unwilling to come. The resurrection was another call to the nation. The dinner is prepared, it's ready, come, and yet they refused, and in fact they killed some and beat others. So he set their city on fire in AD 70 when the Romans came and leveled their temple. Jesus says the king instructs his servants to go out into the highways and to compel them to come in. He opens the floodgates to the Gentiles. That takes us to our second confrontation. Our second confrontation. This one occurs between the students of the Pharisees and Herodians, and they were a secular political party, and they are trying to trap Jesus as well. Luke chapter 20, verse 20, tells us, they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement. Matthew 22. Verse 15, and the Pharisees went and counseled together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, teacher, we know that you're truthful and teach the way of God in truth, yada, yada. And defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Tell us, therefore, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? Sounds like an innocent enough question, huh? Except that it seeks to embroil Jesus into the middle of, a, of an unwinnable situation. The poll tax is exceedingly unpopular among the people. They hate it. 
And they want someone to say not to pay it. The only problem is that if Jesus says don't pay it, that's a seditious statement and Rome will be on his head. So now they think they've got him. They've got him here on the horns of this dilemma. If he says you've got to pay your taxes to, to Caesar, the poll tax, the people, the multitude, they're going to pry him loose this time. There's no way they're going to follow the Galilean after he says that. Yet if he refuses to say that and makes a statement about not paying the poll tax, then Rome will get him. They got him this time. Verse 18, Jesus perceived their malice and said, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said, whose likeness and inscription is this? And you know how the story goes. This is intense spiritual conflict. This is, this is debate at the highest level. This is exhausting. And it doesn't let up. They come at him again. They kind of mad him again. And this time it's the Sadducees, and I call it the resurrection riddle. The Sadducees and the resurrection riddle. Oh, this one's a beaut. This is the one the Sadducees have been frustrating the Pharisees with for years. You know how it goes. Verse 23, Matthew 22. On that day, some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him and questioned him, saying, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother's next of kin shall marry his wife and raise up an offspring to his brother. Now there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died having no offspring, left his wife to his other brother, also the second, the third, down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died. And in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven shall she be? For they all had her. Got him. Got him. See, what they're trying to do to him, what they're trying to do to him here is to discredit the doctrine of the resurrection. They have propounded this riddle that makes it seem absurd. He's the one who said he was the resurrection and the life. So now they're going to, they're going to get him with the riddle that none of the Pharisees can, can answer. If he can't answer this, his teaching, his authority... He'll be humiliated among, among the common people. This will, this will wipe him out. Fools. Verse 29, Jesus answered and said to them, You are mistaken, not understanding the Scriptures or the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read that which was spoken to you by God, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. See, another thing you need to know or to be reminded of with regard to the Sadducees is that they only accepted the first five books of the Old Testament, the Pentateuch. That was the only thing they accepted as the Word of God. And so Jesus goes right to the Scripture that they're willing to accept. Right back there into Exodus. And He says, not that I was the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob, but I am. You see, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are still alive. They're still alive. Verse 33, when the multitudes heard this, 
they were astonished at his teaching. That was the best the Sadducees had to offer. They had, they had confounded the Pharisees for years with that resurrection riddle. And Jesus turns it right back on them. That leads us to our fourth confrontation. Our fourth confrontation. Matthew 22 Verses 34, 36. But when the Pharisees heard that he had put the Sadducees to silence, they gathered themselves together. They probably said, is anybody hear what he said? Let's write that down. We could use that. And one of them said, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question, testing him. Teacher, what is the great commandment in the law? What is the great commandment in the law? Mark 12 gives us a little fuller account of this. Mark 12, beginning in verse 28. Look at verse 29. Jesus answered, The foremost is here, O Israel. The Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, right, teacher, you have truly stated that he is one and there is no one else beside him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding, with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as himself is much more than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered intelligently, he said to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one would dare venture to ask him any more questions. Unwittingly, I think, this Pharisaic lawyer, this scribe, sort of stumbled onto the problem of Israel. The problem is, is that Israel was relying on the externals of its own sacrificial system and it had lost their love for God and their love for man. So when the scribe affirms Jesus' answer, Jesus tells him, you know what? You're not far from the kingdom of God. You're close. But in saying this, when Jesus says to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God, Jesus is indicating that he has the authority over that kingdom. He's in it. And he can tell this man, you're not far. You're pretty close. After that, no one would venture to ask him any more questions. He had silenced all of them. He has bested them in open conflict. He has completely silenced the Pharisees. And now he asked them a question. Now he's going to ask them a question. Back to Matthew chapter 22. He's going to ask them a question drawn from the universally acknowledged Messianic Psalm 110. Verse 41, Matthew 22. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question, saying, what do you think about the Christ, the Messiah? Whose son is he? And they said to him, the son of David. And he said to them, 
Then how does David in the spirit call him Lord, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies beneath your feet. If David then calls him Lord, how is he his son? Maybe I can restate the question for you. How can Messiah be both David's descendant and his Lord? There's only one answer. It's the incarnation. It is the incarnation. It is the God-man. Verse 46, And no one was able to answer him a word, nor did anyone dare from that day on ask him another question. It is a direct claim to being the God-man. Both the Son and Lord of David. Following this, in the failure of the Pharisees to respond to his question regarding Psalm 110, Jesus proceeds to publicly denounce the scribes and the Pharisees. Verse 20, or chapter 23 of Matthew, right? Woe to you! Woe to you! He says over and over again. He says, You have seated yourself in the chair of Moses. And yet your lives are best described as whitewashed tombs, outwardly beautiful, but inwardly full of dead men's bones and all kinds of corruption. Matthew 23, verse 27. I can just imagine the ferocity with which he pronounced those woes. I can also imagine the leadership kind of backing away. We all back away, nobody will get hurt. I see the crowds melting away. They've never seen anything like this. He has shattered all that they held to be true and dear. I see his own disciples kind of stepping back a little bit. I mean, that kind of white-hot anger incinerates people. And it's at this point that an exhausted Jesus sits down opposite the treasury, Luke 21, and he begins to observe the bankruptcy of Judaism and its harsh enslavement pathetically portrayed in the actions of the poor widow who in attempting to buy favor with God gives every single thing she has to live on and goes home to die. Luke 20, verse 47, they devour widows' houses, he says. Luke 21, and he looked up and he saw the rich putting their gifts into the treasury and a certain poor widow putting in two small copper coins He said, truly, I say to you, this widow put in more than all of them, for they gave out of their surplus. But she, out of her poverty, put in all she had to live on. What kind of a corrupt system would do that to people? To the most vulnerable members of society, to the people who are closest to the heart of God. A poor widow. What kind of a system would do that? 
It's late in the day now. Sadducees and the Pharisees have withdrawn to simmer in their murderous hate. Crowds have melted away in the face of Jesus' scathing denunciation of their cherished religion. The only ones left are His bewildered disciples. And they're accompanying Him now out of the temple. Matthew 23. Jesus laments on His way, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, verse 37, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. Often I wanted to gather your children together the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings and you are unwilling. Behold, your house is being left to you desolate. For I say to you, from now on you shall not see Me until you say, Blessed is He who comes in the name of the Lord. And Jesus came out of the temple. I think the disciples are shell-shocked at this point. They don't know what to make of things. I mean, it was just two days earlier that everything was going so well. Right? The crowds were, they were fawning over Him, cloaks into the, in, in the road in front of Him, waving palm branches, laying them out, proclaiming, Hosanna to the Son of David, God save! Here comes the King. He's purposely, purposely driven away all of them. I think it's with a little bit of nervousness they uh, say to him, well, um, look at the temple. It's pretty beautiful, isn't it? Not one stone will be left on another. And he launches from Matthew 24 and 25 into the Olivet Discourse, answering some questions with regard to his return, the signs of the end. That evening, the leadership of Israel was gathered together in the court of Caiaphas, the high priest. They're discussing how they might seize Jesus by stealth and kill him, Matthew 26, verse 4. They decided it's not possible to do it during the feast because there'll be a riot among the people. But and right in the middle of that, lo and behold, in walks Judas offering to betray him. This offer is too good to be true. <laughs> they would have never thought that one of his own would do it. They would have never dared to approach one of the inner circle to sell him out, and yet he came to them. Judas is still stung by Jesus' public rebuke the Saturday night before. Remember that that was at the supper in Bethany. When Judas was criticizing Mary and her anointing of Christ for his for his burial and and Judas is publicly rebuked by Jesus and and Judas is stung by that public rebuke and his anger simmers over and he goes and right into the enemy's den and he bargains for 30 pieces of silver a slave's price to betray his own master. Luke 22, verse 6 says, From that time forward, Judas was looking for a good opportunity to betray him apart from the multitude. That opportunity, by the way, comes Thursday evening at the Last Supper. You want to know why Jesus was so clandestine in 
arranging the room for the Last Supper? It's simple. He didn't want Judas to know where it was going to be. Because if Judas knew, he would have had the Romans waiting. So instead, Jesus arranges this elaborate situation with a man and a pitcher of water and following him and all the rest of that stuff. This is the end of Tuesday. Wednesday is silent in the Gospels. No record of what happens. We don't hear anything again until later Thursday when they're arranging for the, for the room, the upper room, to take the Passover together. It was during that time that the multitudes are home rolling over in their minds what they've seen and heard. Is this really the guy we want? For King. Is this really what we want? Yeah, I, I know a few days ago we said he's our king, but is this really who we want? When we began, I asked you the question given Sunday, why Friday? The answer is, between Tuesday evening and Friday morning, morning, the crowds thought about their Messiah and what He required of them. Sure, He could give them their long-awaited kingdom, but the cost of admission was more than they were willing to pay. At the beginning of the whole thing, John the Baptist said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It was at hand in the person of the King Himself. And he demanded humility. He demanded faith. And they just weren't willing to give it. Deep down inside, they liked their own religion of self-effort. External righteousness. So they killed him. So they killed him. There are some here tonight who like their own religion of self-righteousness, external works. That defines some of you. Terrifying judgment came upon that generation because of their hardness of heart. The same thing awaits you. The same thing awaits you. Unless you change course. You know what makes this Good Friday? You know what makes the day good? It's good because Jesus the Messiah willingly died on a Roman cross in order to pay the penalty for the sins of people like you and me. His death delivers from the futility of a works-based righteousness. And He freely offers that deliverance tonight for anyone who will ask. He said, come to Me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take My yoke upon you and learn from Me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you shall find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my load is light. My question for you 
as you enter into this resurrection weekend, will you come? Is this the year in which you will come? Let me pray. Our Father, we in the short time here have had but a glimpse of the glory of Christ and the hardness of the human heart. Dear Father, we can find ourselves in this narrative. For if we had been there amongst those crowds, our voices would have called out among the mockers, crucify Him, crucify Him. Yet, Lord God, You extend Your mercy and grace even in this most wicked event. Man intended it for evil, but You intended it for good. That through His death and resurrection, He will bring many sons to glory. Our Father, I ask You to apply that truth tonight to those who do not yet know. In Jesus' name, Amen.